This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by NRX, making it easier to buy and sell energy in competitive markets. I think the challenge in looking historically, and I've observed this space for a long time, is that there's a tendency for Ford and GM to do whatever the party in power wants them to do. You know, and I think that's why you saw GM join the Trump administration to unravel the CAFE standards. So I hope this is durable and permanent and this, you know, these announcements and electrification are, are real. Welcome into the Power Connect podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 19 of the show happening today. Glad to have you guys on board as we are each and every episode. And we've got another great one on tap for you today. Joe Britton, Executive Director of the Zero Emission Transportation Association, joins us talking all things electric vehicles. And of course, they've got a tremendous six-part platform that we're going to get into when it comes to the adoption of EVs. And more importantly, they're striving for 100% EV sales by 2030. Now, considering we just hit the 5% tipping point in what, 2021, 2022, the idea that we're going to increase EV sales by 95% over the next eight years is rather ambitious. We're going to talk to Mr. Britton about that and much, much more. But before we get to today's program, again, you guys know how we do it. Just a few housekeeping items that we need to take care of before we get this thing off and running. Number one, make sure you are subscribed, following, whatever you want to call it, to the program. You can do so at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, whichever one. And of course, if you want to listen to us on the website as well, you can certainly do that. The Power Connect. Net. That's the powerconnect.net. And of course, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. It helps with the algorithm. And as you guys know, and of course from folks that have chimed in, we think we do a pretty good job, and so do a lot of you. We've got some great shows coming up. Thursday, we're going to be welcoming to the program authors of the book Climate Restoration, Peter Fikowski and Miss Carol Douglas. We've got Sean Kelly, CEO of Amperon, coming up as well. And then, of course, uh, a show I'm excited about also, Mr. Jim. Curtin, one of the co-founders of the company Grid Monitor. Just tremendous work they're doing over there at Grid Monitor. Excited to talk about him and Mr. Dan Perlman and the work they're doing over there and some of the work they've got coming up. Of course, they are also a Clean Text, a proud Clean Text member, so you definitely do not want to miss that. So let's get right down to it. Let's get to the program today. Joe Britton, Executive Director, Zero Emission Transportation Association, 100% EV adoption by 2030. Is it far-fetched? We'll ask him point blank. EV charging, is that kind of the, you know, is is, is that the holy grail that's going to unlock uh, folks as far as range anxiety goes? Mr. Britton's got a very interesting perspective on that and why the gas station model is the wrong example when it comes to EV charging. And we'll also get into the website Zeta 2030. It absolutely incredible website. Uh, they're talking about where you can find EV jobs, EV infrastructure, and where it's all going down. And of course, what they're doing on the federal level, because that's a big part of what Zeta 2030 does. And so just a lot of great information. I'll tell you what, if you were unsure, uncertain, or just kind of on the fence about EVs uh, before this conversation, I promise you, you are going to be far more well-versed on the EV market after you listen to this program. So without further ado, let's welcome to the Power Connect the executive director of the Zero Emission Transportation Association, Mr. Joe Britton. It's kind of an interesting story. Ultimately, what we kind of identified is that the electric vehicle space didn't really have their own voice in Washington. And part of it's the legacy of some of the big three 
Auto's interests, which was, you know, they, they were part of these EV groups over the years, dating back to the late 80s. And, you know, they had EV programs that were alive and dead off and on. And so ultimately what the EV sector had kind of sensed is that they were being governed by the big three autos. And so this was a chance to, you know, break out on their own, have a voice, actually advocate for policies that would accelerate the transition. You know, in the past, and, and I, you know, give credit to Ford and GM, they've moved uh, quite a bit in the last two years, but there was a time, yeah, there was a time where they were actually advocating you know, Ford was was working against, they were, you know, they were part of an EV group, but they were lobbying against the EV tax credit. And and GM kind of infamously joined the Trump administration to unravel the CAFE standards. So those two things alone were some of the most dangerous impediments to electrification. And, and I think those, you know, it gave the EV community the license to go out and say, you know, we're going to actually fight to accelerate this transition and do it in a way that's good for manufacturing and emissions reduction. So that was really the origin story for Zeta. Are you surprised at the about face that GM and Ford has done? Because again, and and look, they're putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars. Both of these organizations are now committing to electrification and vehicles. And of course, it doesn't hurt that Ford has, you know, the F-150 has gotten just, you know, loads of accolades and and what it's able to do. Uh, GM is, is, is joining that chorus as well. Are you surprised at how quickly they've adopted the EV platform? I think they realize it's good for business and that they need to get ahead of this curve. I personally would like to see them move quicker in different vehicle segment lines. You know, the more that we can make EV offerings meet the needs of every, you know, families, you know, whether it's school, you know, work, you know, church, you know, you're able to, you know, whether it's a minivan, there's a host of different sectors that we also need to electrify, not just the pickup, not just the sedan, you know, Rivian's got the, the, uh, the R1S, the SUV coming out. I think that's going to be a game changer. So I want more and more vehicles and there's dozens that are going to come on the markets in the next, you know, year and a half, two years. I think the challenge in looking historically, and, and I've observed this space for a long time, is that there's a tendency for Ford and GM to do whatever the party in power wants them to do. You know, and I think that's why you saw GM join the Trump administration to unravel the CAFE standards. So I hope this is durable and permanent. And this, you know, these announcements and electrification are, are real. I haven't watched these companies for years. It wouldn't shock me to find out if there's a new party in power, they decide that they're going to move another direction in the future. So, and that's been the history of the EV, right? It's, you know, these, they've stood up a program, they may have even deployed a vehicle and then it gets pulled down, right? So that's why we, we need these vehicle incentives to provide kind of strong, durable market demand. And that's, you know, I think key to ensuring that the, the, the investments remain permanent. And look, and and not to get too political, but are you surprised that the Biden administration seems like there's kind of this adversarial relationship with Tesla, who, as we know, has been, you know, a card carrying EV provider for the last decade? And again, we'll get into the the, the affordability of these vehicles here in just a second. But it seems like and and obviously our boy Elon, who's no stranger to uh, social media, has made it clear his distaste with uh, Tesla being left out of, of the electrical vehicle push. Yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, there was a little bit of scrumming on like, you know, the, the cabinet secretary say Tesla or not say Tesla. So there was a little bit of that that was going on. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I think a lot of that boils down to labor politics. And anybody that, you know, follows our government, you know, know knows the politics and policy get intertwined. And ultimately, I think they they believe strongly in, in emissions reduction. And I think the, you know, the Biden administration is doing a ton right now to, deploy uh, electric vehicle charging. So I don't make a ton out of it. You know, I, I think there's 
with Twitter, you can kind of get infatuated with everybody's every thought and move and emotion. And certainly Elon has a lot of those. But I think, you know, there's a strong partnership in the sense that we want to be making vehicles here. We want to be deploying, charging, and we want to be powering those vehicles with U.S. made power. And so I think everybody's on the same page there. And how much of it is to, dare I say, have we taken Tesla a little bit for granted because they have been producing EVs for so long? And, you know, look, we as a society tend to, you know, what's the latest, greatest thing going on? And, you know, to your point, I mean, look, more people traditionally have always owned Ford and GMs. And so when they, to your point, when they finally did decide to join the party, Traditionally so, they were going to get a little more love and they were going to get a little more fanfare because it was, you know, finally, here are two of the biggest automakers in the world and two of America's most popular companies finally joining the EV fray. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think the labor politics have gotten, you know, the fealty to what UAW wants you to say and wants you to do has contorted, I think, where this administration has been. I think they've, they've largely lost on a lot of those issues. And I think you know you could ask the question like what's the point? Why why did we run down all these rabbit holes? Ultimately, fundamentally, I think it's just very tough politically to say this American job has merit, this other American job does not have merit. And we're going to give special goodies to this job and this worker, but not to this other American worker. And like that was never going to be a durable part of our like clean energy transition. And so I, I think what what is clear is that we need to be winning this race. And we need to be moving ahead and accelerating the transition because, you know, there's a global clean transportation race out there and people don't necessarily know how tied all these things are together. The more battery manufacturing and more automotive manufacturing, that means the more critical minerals, the more components, parts and supplies. You start to get a center of gravity for all the ancillary work that needs to happen in the space. And if we're competing at 5% of the market for EVs, where Europe and Asia are competing, where they're fully scaled and they're at 80%, 90% deployment, they're gonna eat our lunch just like they did in 2006, 2007. If you remember back then, you know, it doesn't take a lot to, to like look back. It was the same kind of period we had now, huge gas price spikes. And all of a sudden Americans turned on American made vehicles because we were making big gas guzzlers and Nissan and Hyundai and Toyota were making more efficient vehicles. And that's what led to the big three auto bailout. We got caught from behind. And that's exactly what we're asking for again, if we don't take this seriously and try to win this race. So that dovetails beautifully into what you and your team over at the Zero Emission Transportation Association are doing. A little bit about, you know, when this thing came to fruition and kind of, you know, when you look at your members, I mean, you literally have a who's who of both in the energy transition, uh, energy providers, as well as EV and, and um, you know, charging providers. When did this thing finally start to gain some steam and when did you finally start to get notoriety and, you know, other folks started to jump on board to see what you guys were doing? Well, we started this, you know, really right as COVID set in, it was probably month one, you know, March, April of 2020. And we started organizing, you know, without knowing who was going to win the presidential race and, you know, some of these other kind of key moments we've had over the last couple of years, January 6th, is, you know, notable inauguration. There's been a lot of just twists and turns, but, you know, we started before all that. And again, it was a recognition that this industry really needed a voice that was, you know, untethered from some of the advocacy that happened in the past, which, like I said, was governed by some of the incumbent players. And this, you know, it's interesting, if you look back post-World War II, you know, there was a huge consolidation in the automotive industry. We, we used to have hundreds 
of automotive uh, companies, manufacturers in the US, but then there was just this huge contraction. We're now seeing a more distributed sector emerge. And so a lot of these companies are ascendant. Um, there's some incumbents, I, you know, obviously Tesla I would consider an incumbent now, but there's Rivian and Lucid and Lordstown. This is a distributed sector where more and more companies are trying to take on the incumbents, trying to do things in a more sustainable, more efficient way. And we realized that that mentality needed to be reflected and have its own voice. So that was really, you know, the origin. And, you know, our, our federal, and we're almost completely federally focused. Um, there's a lot of folks doing good work, the Alliance for uh, Transportation Electrification, uh, Plug in America, other folks that do organizing at the state level and do more kind of, you know, organic grassroots stuff. But we're federally focused. And the reason is, we believe one of the primary drivers to accelerate this transition will be those federal tax incentives, not only for the charging and the vehicles, but even some of the, you know, a battery uh, production tax credit. Those are the huge drivers where we can dedicate in a public policy sense, a real momentum and, and force behind the transition. So explain to the folks at home that are hearing about the uh, Zeta2030.org. That's where you can go to the website. And by the way, a phenomenal website, if I do say so myself. Tell the folks home a little bit about what your six-part platform is. It was something that we put together. There's 60 companies that are a member of Zeta. So we have a really diverse coalition. And so this, to be a little immodest, was, in our view, the most comprehensive federal strategy for electrification that was ever put together. So the, the first is the light duty uh, EV incentive. So this is the tax credit that you get as a consumer if you purchase an EV. We've also been advocating for a, a used EV credit so that if you buy a used vehicle, you also get an incentive. And most people don't realize, but 70% of Americans are in the used car market. And so for us to really accelerate this transition, we need to not only incentivize new car purchases, but we need to incentivize used car purchases. But as, as you might imagine, you need to sell a new car before you're able to sell a used car. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the medium and heavy duty. Um, so medium and heavy duty market. So this is your class eight tractor trailers, uh, your drage trucks at ports. They're really important to electrify because they only represent about 10% of vehicle miles traveled, but they represent 30% of carbon emissions and over 50% of the pollution that really impacts public health. So that's, you know, number two. Uh, number three is a national charging initiative. And so that's something that was part, passed as part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The administration is putting that into place as we speak. I think the states have their plans due for the national EV charging investments August 1. So that's number three on the policy platform. The other is industrial policy, which is how do we, not just for manufacturing the vehicles, but the batteries and the critical minerals, how do we put in place the tax incentives that encourage more US American economic activity when you talk about the supply chain? The fifth is the performance and emission standards. So there's decades of precedent here. This is the cafe standards that you have for vehicles. You need to have a certain efficiency when it comes to you know miles uh, per hour, miles per gallon, or, or if you think about you know, kind of the carbon intensity of the vehicles, having EPA set strict standards to incentivize that transition. Um, and then the sixth and final pillar of our plan is the federal leadership. So what can the federal government do, whether it's the U.S. Postal Service, whether it's the Government Services Administration, GSA, when it comes to putting charging in buildings, or even the Pentagon, deploying vehicles or having those federal workers when they're traveling rent EVs to incentivize this transition, really expose more Americans to the, the driving experience of a superior product. So, you know, that is, you know, there's actually 36, I think, sub points. Six is a lot, but we actually have a lot more detail. People can find out more at Zeta2030.org. But this is really what anchors all of our federal advocacy. Well, and you know what, let me throw one more in there since you got 36 others. There's a lack of 
education information about EVs, right? And of course, we know range anxiety is still a, a big issue. Uh, affordability is still a big issue for folks. And obviously, that dovetails with what you're talking about when it comes to the tax incentives. But how do you go about educating folks? I mean, look, obviously, right now, I mean, again, I'm in Houston, Texas. It's 100 degrees outside right now. The grid is being taxed across the entire country. And so some folks are saying, you know, how are we going to electrify, you know, add more load to the to the grid when a, you know, we, we you know, we're, we're being asked to conserve power. And then on top of that, people are having this range anxiety. How do you get folks to, you know, educate folks about that? And then how have you have you talked to utilities about how do we go forward with infrastructure problems and or questions about taking on more load? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I think there are two separate questions for the consumer. You just got to make it simple, right? People have a lot going on in their lives, you know, kids work logistics of, you know, of commuting. Every, everybody's just got a ton going on. So you just got to make it simple. I happen to believe that EVs are the most simple and convenient. So it's not like you're low on gas and you got to go somewhere and do something about it. You're going to just charge in the background. So charging is something that just happens while you're doing other things conveniently in your life. Certainly as we deploy more chargers, that becomes more universally accessible. But you know, with a gas station, it's, hey, I've got a problem. I need to go and fix it. But with EVs, you're just constantly you know, charging in the background, kind of like you would your phone, right? And so that I think it makes it super, super convenient, um, especially for those that have at-home charging. Even if you're just trickle charging overnight, it's going to be enough range added per day that, um, you know, for most families that drive maybe on average, I think it's 30 miles a day, you know, the, the car's sitting for 95% of the day. It's, you know, it, it's, it's not the challenge. It's just, I actually think it's more change anxiety than range anxiety. It's just a different mentality. I happen to believe it's a far better one uh, where, you know, you're, you're charging while you're doing something else. And so it's, you know, you're, you're, it's, there's no opportunity cost. And, and then with your, you know, it's, I think with Americans, the products need to sell themselves. The incentives make a big difference, but I think as more and more products that meet your family's needs come on the market, whether it's a minivan or an SUV, I think that that'll be part of the intrigue. But what we found is that if you get somebody behind the wheel of an EV, they're 95% likely to never go back to a gas powered car. And so they're able to sell themselves. We just need to provide a little bit of a tailwind for folks to you know, test out something new and realize that it's far better. And then on the grid side, it actually, they allow us to use the grid far more efficiently. And the nice thing is you can do time-based pricing that can push people to charge at a certain time. Like what you don't want to have happen is everybody gets home from work at 5.30, starts their laundry, turns on the AC and then plugs in their car. But that's what managed charging is about. You don't care if you're, you know, as long as you got a full charge in the morning, that's all you care about, right? So you don't care if it's charging from six until 10 or from two until four, right? Or two until six in the morning. As long as when you get out to go to work, you've got a full charge. And that's what managed charging is all about. It can be automated. And, and a lot of utilities are sending price signals. Well, they'll give you a discount of even a third off um, if, you're, if you're charging at a certain time. And so that allows us to shave the peaks and valleys. Because if you think about the power supply, you know, the generation that we use, whether it's coal, gas, renewables, you reach a certain peak in the day. And that's when you run into trouble where there's more demand than there is supply. This allows you to pull down those peaks, right? Or, and to shift that load to when there's a valley, right? So you, you're, you're, ta you're taking utilization of the grid and moving it to when you have excess power and taking it from when you have peak power. So it's a way to more efficiently use the generation mix that we already have today. And as the grid gets cleaner um, and more renewable, you're obviously, you're having more and more efficiency and carbon savings along the way. So 
they're different answers, but it's, you know, to me, it's making this easy for the consumer. They see it. I mean, the products will sell themselves. We just need to provide people a little bit of an incentive to get them to change, try something new. I appreciate that was a very, uh, that, that was one of the best explanations I've heard thus far. What about the affordability? Because I know folks saying, you know, right now, I think I just saw an article on CNBC not too long ago that the average EV cost right now is anywhere between 55 to 60 grand, whereas your brand new, uh, you know, combustion cars right around 45 grand. And to your point, you know, we need more new cars to be, you know, sold so that way we can get into the used car market. Is it a dearth of options right now? And the fact that because this is still a very, you know, relatively new market, that's why we're not seeing A, more used cars, and B, because of the price of materials, why we haven't seen prices start to drop yet it's interesting i actually think people would be surprised there's many evs that actually cost less than the average price of a sedan so the options are there i think the biggest challenge when you think about this is that all of the new um all the all the ev sales today are new car sales so like i said 70 percent of americans are not in the market for a new car and so if they feel like they need to be able to afford a new car to go electric, it's going to seem far worse and far more unattainable than if we had a prime secondary market where they could go and buy an EV that had five years or six years of life on it already. And I think that's where we'll see some of this shake out is, especially if we have an incentive that applies to the used car market, that's the biggest impediment. And sometimes people talk about what does the you know EV driver look like? And, you know, are they, you know, are they more affluent that they live in this neighborhood versus that neighborhood? Oftentimes that's just describing the new car buyer because that's what 30% of the higher income Americans that make up the new car market look like and how much money they make. And so to me, it's about the longevity of this marketplace. And the further we get down the runway and there's more used EVs on the market, it'll feel more accessible. But obviously if the federal government can provide an incentive for both new and used EVs, it helps buy that down. But to your main point, why you know why aren't they the same price? Right now, it's about scale. So I've actually seen data. You know, it's about one hundred and twenty dollars a kilowatt hour for the battery pack right now. Um, but I've seen data that you know by next year it could be down to seventy or sixty dollars a kilowatt hour. And at a hundred is price parity. Like most people consider a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour for the battery pack to be price parity with an internal combustion engine vehicle. And so we're on a, you know, if we scale in the right way, we could not only be, um, you know, uh, at or price parity to internal combustion engines or gas powered cars, but cheaper. And the other part of price, which is actually really interesting is, is gasoline. So right now we did a report, it's on Zeta2030.org. It's five to six times more expensive to power your vehicle with gas than it is electricity. And that's not 15 or 20%, that's literally 500 to 600% more expensive. And so a lot of times I think people think about, well, gosh, here's this one single price and it's the upfront cost of an EV. That seems like a lot, but we nobody's buying a new car with cash, right? We're all taking out a loan and it becomes monthly. And so if your EV, costs you $50 more as part of your loan each month, but you save $200, everybody can do that math because of the gasoline costs. And so I think that's a strong point where if you look at it, like what is the actual like per month out of pocket cost? People can achieve those savings immediately, especially with those federal uh, tax credits. So it's all about, I think, how we think about it. And so like a lot of times you get some of the contrarians, right? The people that want us to be stuck in a carbon intensive transportation sector are pushing out those messages about, oh, it's so inconvenient, they're so expensive. But if you talk to an actual EV owner, you never hear those same points. 
It's funny you say that. I just talked to a gentleman who's a car guy who uh, he owned a BMW 5 Series, a uh, newer model, switched over to a Kia, uh, I don't think of what, the Ionic or something like that, said he'll never go back. And, yep. and, and and again, this is going from a BMW 5 Series. This wasn't like some jalopy this guy was in. I mean, to go and, and you know, if you just said 10 years ago that somebody was going to go from a BMW to a Kia, they, you know, and they said they were never going to go back, you'd probably slap them and ask them what they were drinking. But that just gives you an idea because he said the performance is unlike anything he'd ever been in before, right? Uh, I, I can top you. I, had a, I was with a guy that was driving a Ford F-350, um, one of the nicest pickups I'd ever been in. And he was like, yeah, I'm looking for a, a Tesla Model 3 to trade this thing in for. Is that going to be the game changer to you once we start seeing, you know, fast chargers dotted along streets like we do gas stations? Well, it's interesting. I think one, people would be surprised how many chargers are out there. Like even if you were to pull up your phone on Google Maps and just put an EV charger, I think you'd be shocked at how many are out there. But I would actually caution against thinking about this as recreating the gas station model um, because if you think about the different charging that's available, I actually happen to believe and, and we've done a market assessment that really only 10 or 20% of chargers need to be those fast chargers, which is going to mimic the gas station experience of like, I need to stop now and charge and be gone in 10 minutes, right? Most, most of what I think, you know, one, 70% of charging is going to be done at home. So it'll be residential. Everybody will wake up, or at least of that 70%, wake up with a full charge every morning, right? Never thinking about it. Um, they may only need to charge once a week, but it's something that's super easy. They plug in, they've got, you know, a full charge in the morning. That'll be the best use case. But the other, you know, most people, like everybody has this image of going to grandma's house at Thanksgiving and driving the great American race across four states and doing that in two days, right? But, you know, the number of times that you're going to do that's pretty limited, but that's why the administration is prioritizing those fast chargers along transportation corridors. That's where they need to be. But for everywhere else, you know, church, school, grocery store, workplace, municipal on and off street parking, most of those are should be level twos, right? Um, because you're going to be parked there for four to five hours at a time, maybe less, maybe more, but you don't need to charge in 10 minutes. And the reason that's important is the cost to deploy a level two charger is about $2,000. The cost to deploy a fast charger is about 100000 right? So it's a scale. Yeah, we want as many of these fast chargers as we can afford. But if at the end of the day, you know, you can have 50 level two chargers for every one fast charger, you want as much accessibility for the consumer as possible. And if your car is going to sit there for seven hours at a time while you're at work, eight hours, then do you need it to be charged in 10 minutes? No. And so that's where you need to have a blend where you match use cases and you provide the most convenience for the consumer. You mentioned, though, that this is as much about a behavioral change as anything. How does Zeta 2030 help with that process of getting people to understand what you just said? Because, again, I mean, let's call it what it is. Most folks, like to your point, are used to just, you know, you drive around and then, oh, I need to go get gas. But again, to you, but also, yeah. too, we're not used to gassing up our cars at home either, right? So, I mean, is that part of it, too, yeah. where we're not used to being on E when we go home and then we wake up, we got a full tank? Well, you know what's interesting is that like, and I've got my phone here on an induction charger. I'm sitting at my desk. It's charging, right? Imagine if we were used to having to go somewhere once a week and get our phone recharged. We had to go pay somebody to do something to it. And we were making an extra trip. Like that would be preposterous. But instead we charge 
while we're sleeping, while we're doing other things. Like it is a natural step that we take in other parts of our life. I think part of it is just exposure. And you know, I think there is a catalyst moment where we all have a friend or a neighbor or a grandchild who has an EV, and you start to you know ask yourself, oh, maybe I could do that. Gosh, I'm wait, I'm paying five to six times more for gas to power my car. Like I'm not, I don't want to throw my money away to, to an oil and gas company when I could be powering my car for one fifth of the price and doing it with locally generated power. Like that makes sense to me. So part of it is time and exposure, and you have more Americans and kind of the forced multiplication of you know, the more people that are out there that are acolytes for this, that are out there, you know, telling their friends and neighbors about it, that grows and will have an exponential impact. But, you know, we happen to think that it's not only a natural inertia and organic, but the federal government providing these tax incentives will accelerate that and help us get to a future where one, we're creating jobs, but two, we're reducing emissions for climate change and public health at the same time. And that's really the future that we're pushing for. What do you tell folks that are in apartments that don't have maybe or you know don't have uh, enough chargers there and or people that are renting homes? Um, how about how do how do they go about if they if they're looking to get a uh, EV with the home charging? Well, there's a there's a couple things like one, and I actually use level one charging the most, which is like the same level of service that your toaster runs on, right? Okay, it's just a fancy extension cord. You can plug that in anywhere, right? And so that's that's what I use the most because I don't have off-street parking. I'm one of those um, Americans. I don't have a single family home with a garage. And so we park on the street and, you know, I'll, I'll plug in with a level one charger. Maybe once a week, I'll leave it overnight at the grocery store and just charge it fully. Uh, so there's a lot of other options, but that's the whole point of why you have the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program that the administration is pushing why you have retail, why you have workplace, why you have municipal parking, like providing all of those other options. That's what this whole closing the gap is about is for those people that, you know, multi-unit housing or folks like me that don't have off-street parking. We want to make it so that while you're at the grocery store, you can charge. While you're at church, you can charge. While you're at work, you can charge. That's the whole point of all these other options. So like, yeah, the easiest use case is like I've got a single family home with a garage and I charge to full every night. That's the easiest. But that's the whole point of these other options is to make it so that, you know, without a lot of thought, Americans can find charging just as easily as they can find gas stations. So when you say the level ones, just for the folks at home that are, you know, again, that are that are learning about this, how many, obviously we've, we've heard, I mean, ad nauseum about the, the fast chargers, but you mentioned level one and level two. What are all the levels of the chargers and kind of what is the duration and how do they work? Yeah, so level one is, like I said, you know, it's, it's a little more than an extension cord, but not much more. But that's the same level of service that like a light or a toaster. It's 110 volt and like an outlet that you would have in your, everywhere else in your house, right? And you'll, you'll get, you know, for your average car, probably three to four miles of range per hour, but which doesn't sound like a lot and it's not intended to be a lot. It's a trickle charger. But if you think about it, you charge overnight, you've got an extra 35 or 40 miles of range which for your average American consumer is more than they would drive in a day. So you're you're winning every day, you're adding more range. Then you have level two, which is the same level of service, a 240 volt, same level of service that your electric dryer or your oven would be on. And instead of three or four miles of range per hour, you're getting 25 or 30 miles of range per hour. So, you know, you'll have a full charge, you know, certainly overnight, but probably in half a day, right? You'll have an absolutely full charge. So you would start every single day with a full charge. And, and that's, you know, if you think about it in kilowatts, so a level one charger is one kilowatt, a level two charger is probably in the range of six to 16 kilowatts. And then your direct current fast chargers 
are those from 50 to 350 kilowatts. So those are the ones that you know are designed to be along transportation corridors, huge uh, power load, um, where if your vehicle is capable of it, you know, to accept a 340 volt direct current fast charge, you might be fully charged in you know 12 to 15 minutes. So again, it depends on the use case, but there's plenty of different charging that matches the consumer need and the consumer use. And that's why we want to you know, be smart about this. We're deploying these in the right way. So we reach the most Americans and we make it convenient for everybody. What would you say in the years you've been covering covering this and what you guys are dealing with right now as you continue to educate folks and, and work for, for more federal guidance on this, what's the biggest misconception about electric vehicles? I think the, the biggest misconception is when people think about the, and I actually think it's change and charging anxiety more than range. I think they, in their mind, they think, how long does it take me to charge from zero to a hundred? But the truth is you're really never going to be charging from zero to a hundred. Even if you're on a, a long cross country road trip, I actually, there's a blog that my wife and I put together. We were driving from Nebraska to Washington, DC, um, you know, 20 hours of driving essentially. Um, and the point that we made was that we, like the vehicle was never the impediment, right? Of how do I keep going? It was always, you know, you don't want you don't want to drive for more than five hours without stopping for the restroom or stopping to get a bite to eat or stopping to stretch your legs. So we just happen to stop and charge. And you've got two small kids, don't you? Yeah. It, well, <laughs> this was without the kids, thankfully. But yeah, if you have two kids, you're stopping every thirty minutes for something. So if you stop where you charge. All of a sudden you're charging from 40 to 60%, 70 to 90%. Like you're just doing chunks at a time. And we were never waiting on the vehicle. So I think that's where like, if people in their mind, they're like, gosh, I'm gonna be stuck somewhere having to wait on my vehicle. Um, that I think is the biggest misconception. You, you are probably going to be the biggest impediment rather than your vehicle when it comes to those long trips. We talked about reaching that 5% tipping point, which as, uh, you know, just again, from historical standpoints across the world, that tends to be the, the point where you start to see a, a, an increase and in kind of a, obviously not mass adoption, but that's where folks start to, you know, you start to see more people accept it. Is that kind of the same feeling? And, and, and was that what kind of your research is telling you? And what, from, from the work you're doing out, in, you know, both federally and just from state to state and what you're hearing from your 60 members, what are you hearing as far as, you know, the adoption and the better uh, understanding and attitude towards EVs? Well, I think folks right now are, I think the supply chain has everybody really concerned. I mean, if you think about where gas prices have been, and if you think about inflation generally, I don't think actually many people realize this. They might think like, oh, there's all sorts of different things in our economy and the prices are all going up. Almost all of it has to do with the price of oil and gas, right? I think the majority is directly attributable to gas prices, but then it's those costs for the oil and gas production that get uh, infused into everything else, groceries, electricity, all the other things that we buy, they're getting more expensive, largely because oil and gas is getting more expensive. And the problem is that we're tethered to unstable foreign oil markets. We don't get to determine the price because this is a global commodity. And so if Russia invades Ukraine or you know Saudi Arabia and OPEC decide they're going to limit production, we're, we're stuck, right? We're at this point where we are, we have no control. And so I think to me, that's the number one thing that people are worried about is those supply chain costs. So right, right now, 
if our ability to sever our ties on these unstable foreign markets and unfriendly capitals around the world are directly tied to our ability to transition to electric vehicles and renewable energy. But the supply chain constraints, and this is the irony, is that Putin is lining his pockets at the same with high oil and gas prices at the same time that he's jamming up our supply chains, which make it more difficult for us to transition. And so we need we, we need to sever our ties and reliance on these foreign markets because we'll never be free. We'll never be able to go to the American consumer and say, I've got an idea that's going to solve your problem today because the president or everybody else, they're probably the least in control of gas prices. We've outsourced our reliance to foreign capitals around the world. And so that's what I think everybody is worried about. And it's those supply chains, getting them under control, reshoring, or at least friendshoring, uh, which is the treasury secretary, Janet Yellen called it last week, friendshoring. Like we need to have supply chains that are secure and are, are reliable with our allies. And I think that's where everybody is focused because we know that we're never gonna solve these problems that consumers are facing and they're challenged with today. Their pocketbooks are constrained because of what a foreign dictator is doing thousands and thousands of miles away, we have the ability to fix it. And that's kind of what we're focused on. You're also focused on 100% EV adoption by 2030. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously you wouldn't have set that goal uh, if you didn't think it was realistic. Do you think we can increase it 95% between now and 2030? And or what's a reasonable alternative for you? I guess it's one of those goals where, look, if you don't hit it, if you get to 75, you're still feeling pretty good about things. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. So I actually think, and this brings to your point, is about the tipping point. So if you're just to look at straight adoption curve, like an S curve of other technology, so cell phones or ear pods or you know, whatever in the past that you think of as a technological S curve, we're behind and we need to make more progress. But I do think there's a consumer element to this. These are far superior products, the torque, the performance, the maintenance savings, the fuel savings. Americans are going to want an EV. They may just not know it yet. They may not have been exposed to it. So I actually think our ability to catalyze an accelerated transition is enormous. If the federal government invests in the right ways, we provide that tailwind just to kind of nudge people in the direction that this is something you might want to consider. I can see us making far more progress than many people project. So yes, 2030 is ambitious for 100% EV sales, but I actually think the consumers themselves are the ones that are going to choose. And they're going to want these things, right? Especially, like I said, if we get more offerings, the vehicles that they're accustomed to relying on become more and more available. I think this is a transition that's right, but we've got to get the industrial policy right. We've got to get the consumer incentives right. And we need some leadership from the federal government to make this a reality. Without that, I think that's it's going to be very elusive. But I do think it's within reach. For anybody that is pondering buying an EV, and of course, if they haven't decided after listening to this conversation, I don't know what to tell you, tell them about what they can find on the Zeta2030.org website. Well, so actually, this is one of the best things that people can do is sign up for our newsletter. You'll get all sorts of federal updates, ways that you can advocate. One of the things that we're going to be pursuing uh, in the year ahead is an advocacy network where we have a grassroots kind of army of folks that are out there pushing for electrification. But one of the other things you can find from all of our members and, and on the on the members section of the website, you can go and click on all the links and get exposed to how many different ascendant companies across the country are providing leadership in this space. We also have an economic investment map so people can go and look who's in my community is investing in electrification, whether it's parts and supplies or components or charging or power, and they can see who's leading in the space. 
And I think folks would be surprised at exactly where that is. One of the things that I like to tell people is that if you think about like politically, you know, partisan landscape, yeah, you might have Democrats that are maybe more enthusiastic about electrification. But if you look at our investment map, almost all the jobs are being created in Republican states. So everybody has something at stake here. And we could really do right by the American people, make it a true success story if we invest in the right ways. And, and our website's a great way to go and learn about that. Thanks so much for that, Mr. Joe Britton. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and of course on the website as well, thepowerconnect.net. And as we said already, don't forget about the news you can use podcast we've got going on every Monday and Wednesday, Friday. Great stuff we're hearing from that. Like I said, look, we get you in, we get you out. Seven, eight minutes or less, we tell you three, four, five stories of what's going on in the energy world. It's Again, it's, a, it's an espresso shot for your brain, boys and girls, full of energy news. You do not want to miss out. Check it out. You will be glad that you did. And of course, if you want to partner with the Power Connect, if you want to be a sponsor, whatever, if you want to submit news for it, or if you just want to be a guest on the show, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Fred Davis, The Power Connect. And of course, you can also reach out to us via email as well. Fred at thepowerconnect.net. Fred at thepowerconnect.net. Thanks, everybody, once again, the, the audience, the listeners, uh, the guests, everybody for making The Power Connect what it is. This has been The Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, off builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do.